You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. Long before he was a peddler of fine miniature countertop grills, George Foreman was a beast in the boxing ring. Powerful, feared, Mike Tyson, long before Mike Tyson. And now I know that I'm using a 30-year-old reference to describe a 60-year-old reference, but it's fine, just hang with me. He was a really bad dude inside the ring. And so when it came time for George Foreman to fight Muhammad Ali, the general consensus was that even though Muhammad Ali could in fact float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, George Foreman was just gonna be too much. He was just too strong. He was just too powerful. He was going to put him down. And so as they enter the ring in the rumble in the jungle, the first couple rounds, that's exactly what it looks like. You see George Foreman just throwing these powerful punches with these giant arms, just haymaker after haymaker. And for everyone watching, it looked like he was on the verge of finishing this quickly. But what people didn't recognize right away is that Muhammad Ali was hitting him with the rope-a-dope. He was backing into the ropes. He was leaning back in different directions. So these big, strong punches, they were making contact, but not doing damage in a way that you would expect. And so as Foreman is throwing these huge punches, Ali is just waiting. And he waits round after round until Foreman starts to slow down. And his punches start to get a little weaker time after time after time. And finally, at just the right moment, Ali begins to strike. And he puts down this powerful man in George Foreman. And what we see is that this is a victory through endurance. That he outlasted the more powerful puncher by buying his time, allowing him to punch himself tired, and then going on the attack. When we look through the book of Revelation, so far up until chapter 13 here, We have seen a constant onslaught against the followers of Christ, both physical and spiritual. Starting in the first seven chapters with these letters to the churches that show the things that were going on in the life of the church around John and in that first century, moving on into the spiritual warfare and the kingdoms of the world, making their cases against the church and trying to bring harm against God's people. And each time, as the suffering and oppression and persecution of the church is both recounted and promised, past, present, and future, the call remains the same, to endure, to persevere, and to outlast. See, last week we looked at, in Revelation chapter 13, the picture of this dragon and these two beasts that represent the spiritual enemies of Christ, the the spiritual things that are trying to bring down the kingdom of God and lead people to turn away from Christ. And today we're going to see that the way that we conquer these enemies is not by becoming spiritual superheroes, but through faithful endurance, keeping the commandments of God, doing the work of the kingdom until Satan's time runs out And he goes crashing into the ropes. And so this morning, we're going to look at six different things that we're called to do to be a people of endurance and to combat the spiritual enemies of Christ and his kingdom so that we can stand firm in the truth of the gospel and live in the victory that Jesus has won 
on our behalf. And so we're going to look at two passages of scripture that teach us the same thing, that give us the same calling in slightly different language. Starting in Revelation 13, verse 7 through 10, and then jumping ahead just a little bit to Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. And this is God's word. It says, also it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive into captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And then in chapter 14, verse 12, he says again, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you and praise you for your word. We praise you for the victory that you've won through Christ and his death and resurrection and in the promise of his return. But God, we thank you that we also can know that you know. You know the suffering of your people all around the world and throughout the ages. You know not just the physical attacks that come against us at times, not just the circumstantial things that bring us down, but also the spiritual battles that we endure each and every day. And so God, I just thank you that you've given us the spirit of victory and of freedom to be able to make war against that enemy each and every day. And so I pray that you teach us and equip us to stand firm in the truth of the gospel, to hold fast to the faith, to keep the commandments, and in doing so, through our endurance and our perseverance, day after day, bringing the work of our enemy to nothing and the work of Christ to fame and glory as it should be. And so God, we put all of these things in your hand and ask for your strength and your favor as we read your word, as we hear your word, and as we prepare to leave and apply your word to our lives. God, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing, as we look at the contrast of the enemies of God in Revelation 13 with how we're supposed to respond to these spiritual attacks that are ongoing each and every day in the life of Christians, in the life of the church, and in our world. The first thing that is our responsibility to do, the first thing that we can do to combat these enemies that we have is simply to know the gospel. We need to know the true gospel. Last week, we looked at two different temptations inside of scripture. We saw the temptation by the serpent of Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three. And then we looked at Jesus being tempted by that same serpent, by the devil in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four. But those stories have two very different endings because the serpent approaches both people in a very similar way. And yet Eve falls into sin and gives into the temptation and Jesus doesn't. Now, what's the difference? Well, obviously we could say it's Jesus, but I think there's a more practical answer to that as well. Because when we look at those temptations, when the serpent comes to Eve, he starts to question her about God's word. 
And did God really say that you couldn't eat any of these trees? And she, in essence, said, I mean, I don't think that's what he said. He said, we could eat any tree of the garden, but we can't eat from this tree or we, I can't touch it. Something along those lines. Not a whole lot of confidence, not a lot of steadfastness in the knowledge of what God had commanded her. And so when that doorway was opened a little bit, that's when the serpent moved in with the heavy artillery. But in the wilderness, as Satan tempts Jesus over and over and over again, Jesus doesn't come back with rationalizations. Jesus doesn't come back with excuses or his own personal thoughts. Jesus comes back time after time, quoting the truth of scripture. To every lie, to every manipulation, to every temptation, Jesus responded with, nope, this is what the word of God says. And he stood firm through those temptations. As we saw last week, the primary weapon of our enemy is falsehoods and lies. And so our primary weapon against that enemy must be the truth. When we see Paul talk about the armor of God, the spiritual armor that we're supposed to wear to keep ourselves secure and to keep ourselves walking with Christ and defending against these attacks of the enemy, he says that we're supposed to put on the belt of truth. And belts are really important, really helpful. When I was a youth pastor a long, long time ago, I had this little dude that was in sixth grade in our youth group, and he always came wearing pants that were way too big, way too big. But we would play ultimate Frisbee before each night, before we started our, our youth group stuff. And he would always have in one hand a can of Coke, and then in the other hand, his pants. And he would just be running down the field, holding his arm up and then grabbing his pants, and then holding his arm up and grabbing his pants. Now, were he to have worn a belt, he would have been a much more well-equipped ultimate Frisbee player, right? Because the belt holds everything up. It holds everything together. And so Paul says that it's truth that holds the rest of the armor together. It's truth that holds our walk with Christ in the place that it should be. And so when it comes to being followers of Christ, when it comes to being a Christian, anything and everything that we do must start with a passion for truth. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of God's word that will defeat our enemies. When we look in the book of Revelation, when we see these martyrs who are victorious in Christ, it says they have conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That what gave them that victory was what Christ did on the cross and through the empty tomb and then their testimony, the words of truth that came out of their mouth, that's how they made their victory come to fruition over the enemy. And so it's the responsibility. And I wanna emphasize that word heavily. It is the responsibility of every church, every pastor, minister, and church leader, and every believer to know the truth of the gospel, to speak the truth of the gospel, and to live the truth of the gospel. And we do that through a passionate dedication to God's word, through spending time in scripture, through spending time allowing the word of God to conform our lives to him and renew our minds every single day, to be committed to praying and asking the Holy Spirit to teach us and illuminate the word of God each and every day so that when we hear the lies of the enemy, then we can rest firmly in the truth of God. 
that when we hear the falsehoods of the world all around us, we can stay rooted in the promise of the gospel and the hope of who Jesus said he is and what he's going to do for us. We can remain steadfast in all things by knowing the truth. But if that isn't our foundation, if that isn't our belt holding all things together, then we're going to be, like Jesus says, just drifting in the wind, moving from place to place with every lie and falsehood when we are called to be steadfast in truth. And so we have to know the gospel. But then we also have to worship the true king. We know the true gospel and we worship the true king. Think about the story of Elijah as he stands as the only prophet of God amidst all of these prophets of Baal and all the worshipers of this idol. And they, in essence, have a worship off. They have these two altars on which they're going to offer a sacrifice and expect their gods to bring the fire. And of course, as the story goes, the prophets of Baal do everything they can, but because they're worshiping a false god, their worship has no power. But then Elijah comes and he shows off a little, he pours some water on the altar and he just offers a prayer to God and fire falls and consumes the altar. And then what happens is people see what takes place there. They see the power of God and how God was faithful in responding to Elijah's worship. And all of these worshipers of Baal turned away from their false God, away from these false prophets and began to worship Yahweh. It was a battle won through worship. And it reminds us of a very real truth that's present not just in the church, but everywhere. And that's that worship is contagious. Now, outside of church in 2019, we call that going viral, right? Things catch on. And passion for thing is very contagious. And so that's why we have, when we look all around the world, such affinity and a desire to put our hopes and our affections in a wide variety of things, whether it's celebrities or athletes or sports teams, jobs, finances, any sort of power that can come by, any sort of cultural phenomenon, we put all of our attention and our affection. And when you find somebody who's really into something, and they're preaching the gospel of that thing they love, whether it's a hobby or their job or their lifestyle or whatever it may be, it can be very captivating and enrapturing. And so when that happens, when somebody worships something faithfully, it can be very contagious. And so all around us, the world passionately worships all kinds of things. Meanwhile, inside the church, oftentimes we feel like we have to manufacture passion. And so we do all that we can to create an experience and an environment that feels like worship, but more often than not, the actual worship that goes on is found to be somewhat lacking. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. Individually, as a church, as Redeeming Grace Community Church, and as a church with a capital C all over the world, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does my worship what does our worship as a church, what does our worship as Christians all over the world, what does our worship teach about our Christ? Because we saw in Revelation chapter 13 that these enemies of God are trying to pull worship away from God and create false worshipers over a false deity, over a false idea, over false security. All of these lies trying to breed people in and bring them to worship something other than God. 
And the antidote to false worship is always going to be true worship. The only thing that can lead people out of false worship, like with, with Elijah, is people who are passionately and boldly worshiping the one who really is. But the problem is because of how we fall into these patterns of complacency and we forget the truth of the gospel and we forget the power of God and the majesty of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, we forget all of these things. And so we get into these patterns of things that feel like worship, but it's not really worship. And that's not ever going to be able to stand against all the other things that are vying for the attention of people around the church. And so our worship because of who we worship, should be contagious. If we're really worshiping God the way that we should, other people are going to see that and recognize the passion and the fervor and want to know more about what's going on there. And if we believe that we are worshiping the God who put the stars in the sky, the God who authored salvation and was willing to give everything for us so that we could just have a relationship with him, not simply now, but for all of eternity, then that should permeate everything that we do. Not just our singing, but it should permeate our singing. We should sing like people that have been redeemed and to believe in a God who is bigger than all things and can do all things. It shouldn't just affect our prayer, but it should affect our prayer. And it should move on to every aspect of our lives and we should live and move and breathe and worship on a daily basis. And especially as we gather together as a church, as people who believe the things that we're saying, people who are passionate about the God who loves and cares for us. And because of that, our worship can be and should be evangelistic. The way that we live in worship should draw people to the God who is and who was and who always will be. We don't have to rely on weird gimmicks as a church or trying to trick people into the doors. We just need to be people who worship well and put the majesty of our God on display. And if we know the true gospel, it's going to be really hard to not worship the true king. But then, number three, I want to revisit something we've already talked about a little bit. Because we need to know the true gospel, we need to worship the true king, and we also, as the church, need to live in prophetic power. In Revelation 13, last week we talked about all the falsehoods that the enemies of God throw into the world. And John paints this picture of these beasts that represent these spiritual enemies of God, and he says they impose their influence by displaying their power. They create a circumstance where they can create things that look somewhat divine, even though they're not. And that influence is put all over by saying, look at the things that we can do. In Revelation 11, we saw this picture of these two witnesses that represent the people of God, represent the followers of Christ. And for the first section of this passage, it just kind of looks like they're taking L's a little bit. We see these beasts of Revelation chapter 13 making war against these two witnesses, making war against the people of God to the point where they're broken down and even killed. And it looks like the, the battle is over and that the enemies of God had won the victory. But then at the end of that chapter, we see the resurrection of these people of God. And we see that they really were the ones who had the victor over the battle. And when we talk about the church, 
And when we look at the book of Revelation, there is a constant reminder throughout the entire book of the church's power, of the victory that Christ has won for us, of the power that the Holy Spirit works in and through the church to accomplish unbelievable and incredible things. But I'm not sure that we believe it yet. I'm speaking personally too. I've been preaching on this over and over and over again, and yet still, in the back of my mind, when I think about the church and its power, I just think about the things that I think that we have the ability to do. We were talking Tuesday night in our small group that meets at our house about the fact that we, we limit things based on our own limitations. And we think, okay, we're this kind of church and we have this kind of people and we can do this thing. And so we make the list of the things we're able to do and then the things that we don't think we're able to do. And we just push those things aside, forgetting that it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through the church to do things far beyond our ability or even our comprehension. I can't imagine what the disciples thought as Jesus looked at them and said, I'm going away, but I'm going to leave you here to do things far beyond what I've already done. But that's the calling that Jesus gives to the church to be the hands and feet of Christ and to do far beyond what we could ever imagine or understand. But so often we let things get in the way of believing that. More often than not, it's, it's sin and temptation. We allow sin and temptation to reign in our lives in a way that prevents us from taking these steps of faith and boldness because we think, no, I'm not good enough. And we allow ourselves to be distracted by temptation and held back by sin and shame and guilt so that we can't step forward and do what God is calling us to do. But then on the other side, we can let the fear of struggle and discomfort and even oppression stop us from living lives of victory and gospel work and gospel love. We start to think, well, if I do this, What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my relationships? What's going to happen to the way people see me? What's going to happen to my financial stability? What's going to happen to my personal stability and my relationships and all these things? What's going to happen if I really do this? This seems really big and really scary, and I'm not really equipped for this. And so I'm going to step back and just wait for someone better to come along and do it. And we do that individually and as a church. But we are told in Scripture that we are not simply conquerors through Christ Jesus, but that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. That Jesus has already won the battle. That he's defeated sin on the cross. That he's defeated death through his resurrection. So we have a promise that there is literally nothing that the world can do to us or against us. Even if our lives are taken away for the cause of Christ, we have a hope beyond our last breath and beyond the grave. And there is a lot of freedom and power that comes in that, knowing that we have been set free from our sin, from our shame, and from our guilt so that we can walk in faith and in Christ. And we have nothing to fear from the world around us or the spirit enemies of God because there is nothing that can snatch us out of our Father's hands. And so why do we so often live in fear when we are called to live in freedom and to walk in victory and to be the kind of people who boldly go wherever Christ leads us to go and live with that sense of victory? We need to share our faith with victory. We need to love our neighbors 
with victory. Not worrying about how they reciprocate that, but knowing that we can love passionately, not needing anything in return because we have been loved by the God of the universe more than we ever deserve. And he's provided for us a family in the church who loves us and cares for us in our time of need. And so we don't need to go out looking for a reciprocal relationship from people around us. We just need to go and love and serve our neighbors the way that Christ has called us to. We need to be the people who care for the widows and orphans of our world, to care for those in need and be generous without counting the cost, knowing that Christ has given us all we need in our salvation. And so whether we have much or whether we have little, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And so we need to be the kind of people who give sacrificially because God has given to us sacrificially. And so we should care for those in need. We should be the kind of people who boldly stand against oppression and injustice in our world because we have a God who is righteous and just and calls us to do the same thing, even if it causes us to risk our personal reputation or even our own personal safety. It's our job to stand on behalf of those who can't stand for themselves. And we can do that in victory because Jesus has already won the battle. All we are called to do is just endure and then receive that victory. And so we should live individually and as a church recognizing that we have the security of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us so that we can accomplish far beyond what we could ever imagine. So we know the true gospel, worship the true king. We live in this prophetic power and then we keep the faith and the commandments. In Revelation 13, we see this long list of what may happen to the believers in Christ. In verse 10, it's heavy. He says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Basically saying there, whatever happens, whatever comes in your life, you go and you take that and you participate in that because that's where God is calling you to for his purpose. But here is your responsibility in that. You need to have an endurance. Because of this, there is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. And then in chapter 14, in a passage that we'll look at in more detail next week, But in chapter 14 and verse 12, we see that same call for endurance again, except this time there's an addition to it. In fact, there's a bit of a definition. He says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here we have a definition for a very heavy word. He said, it's a call for endurance of the saints. Now that word comes with a lot of weight to it. And we often think about someone as a saint, as someone who goes above and beyond, right? In some traditions, there's veneration of of certain Christians who do a certain amount of things and live a certain kind of life. And so they become kind of separated out from among the flock. In church history, in the church calendar itself, there's traditionally been two days to celebrate the church. One called All Souls Day and one called All Saints Day. And so there, there's a division in our mindset of there's just ordinary, regular Christians, and then there are the good ones. They're the ones that really do the things, and they're the special ones who have all this extra stuff and this extra ability, and so we divide ourselves out. But here's what John does, as he echoes this calling that he hears in this vision in heaven. He says, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, and here's who those saints are. Those saints are those who keep the commandments of God 
and their faith in Jesus. And so we have this perception that a saint is the best of the best, that it's those Christians that transcend normal life. But here, out of the word of God, we have this definition of a saint as anyone who keeps the commandments and who holds fast to the faith. That's us. That's anyone who's put their faith in Christ Jesus. That's anyone who's been saved by God. That's anyone who finds their hope in Jesus. We are the saints of God. But it's hard to believe that sometimes because we do tend to compare ourselves with other people and we know ourselves really well. And as it turns out, much of our fight personally against our enemy comes in the form of our identity. In the Bible, Satan is called an accuser and an adversary of God's people. And one of the main things that he does, while we have this cartoonish image of Satan with his pitchfork trying to drive us into a life of debauchery, the thing that he tends to do most of all in the life of a believer is just whisper things in our ear and make accusations against us. You're not good enough. No, I'm probably not. Don't you know all the things that you've done? Yeah, I do. You're not like that person. Look at all the things they do. You don't do those things. No, you're right, I don't. There's no way God should love you. No, he really shouldn't. And here's what's crazy about that. All of those things are true. Everything that Satan could say about us is absolutely 100% true until the gospel comes in. Because then that changes our identity, right? Then all of a sudden we hear those whispers where he says, you're not good enough. And we're going to say, you know what? I'm not, but Jesus is. He says, don't you know all the things that you do? And we say, yeah, I know all the things that I've done, but look at what Christ did for me. He says, you're not like all those other people. You don't do all the things that they do. You're like, no, not yet. I'm a work in progress. But every single day, God is shaping me to be more and more of who I'm supposed to be. And he loves me too, because we have a promise in scripture that he seals us and saves us from great to small. And that in the kingdom of God, the greatest shall be least and the least shall be greatest. And so God loves me too. And Satan says, well, no, he shouldn't love you. And you're like, you're, yeah, he absolutely shouldn't. But he does. And he's given me a new name. He's given me a new identity. The old is past, the new is come. And so all of a sudden, all these things that are absolutely true about us without Christ become a falsehood and a lie in our lives that we can reject with the power of the gospel. Our enemy wants our faith to wane and us to slide into patterns of sin and idolatry because he wants us to doubt the identity that we have as followers of Christ, but we can stand firm on the truth of the gospel saying, no, that may be who I was, but that's not who I am anymore. And now listen, we're not perfect, but we know that there's a lot of damage that can be caused when people who claim to be believers in Christ don't keep the faith and walk away. We know that there's a lot of damage that's caused when people that wear the name of Christ live in a way that rejects the commandments and the love of God and shows that level of hypocrisy. And so that's why Paul talks about faith as being a shield. 
that it keeps us from those attacks, from those lies that the enemy has against us so that we can stand firm. And then as we do that and realize that God has saved us so that we can follow after Christ and that we don't keep the commandments to earn our salvation, but as an act of worship, as an act of walking in the salvation that God has given us, then we're able to stand above reproach and defend the name of Christ through our lives and his gospel through our faithfulness and our obedience. And so we need to start living like the saints that we are. If you put your faith in Christ, you are a saint of God. You don't have to wait until a few years after you die. There is no spiritual hall of fame in believers and who we are. You have been sealed and marked with the name of God on your hand and on your head. He knows you, he loves you, and has called you his children. And nothing will change that. And so Paul says, Since that's true about us, we should walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And so our response to the new identity that we're given in Christ is to start living a life that looks a little more that way by keeping the faith and keeping his commandments. But then we also need to learn to labor well. We need to learn to do good work. There is an approach to the book of Revelation and to what we call eschatology, this big word that means the study of stuff that happens at the end. There is an approach to this book in particular and some of the things that Jesus says in the gospels that has a mentality that basically what God is doing in our world is that he's waiting for things to get really bad. And once they get really bad, he's going to come and snatch away all the Christians off into the ether, into heaven somewhere outside of here. And then he's going to allow the world to rot and burn. And we're going to be off out somewhere else. And everything else is going to pass away. And that is certainly not, as we're going to see as we continue through the book of Revelation, the plan that God has for his people or the plan that God has for this world that God is in the process of redeeming and restoring his creation, that we have a promise of life here on earth for all of eternity, just perfected and glorified. And yet there's still this mentality that turns into kind of an escapist eschatology. That we're just waiting to hop on a train somewhere and get away from all the bad stuff. And so because of that, when you know that you're only going to be around for a certain amount of time, you start thinking, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. And so that kind of approach to scripture and that kind of approach to the book of Revelation can lead us to some very bad habits as the church where we feel like we should be strictly inclusive, only focusing on what happens inside of these doors, not caring what happens in the world because it's all going to burn anyway, and I'm just waiting for my ticket out. And admittedly, there are times when the book of Revelation feels a little passive in its language about the church. Because the book of Revelation at its core is not about us. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ and his power and his gospel and what he is gonna do to bring the world to rights. And so when we see the church talked about, it's things happening around the church and things happening to the church and the church going through things. And so it feels very passive, like we're just along for the ride. But when we take the book of Revelation and put it in its proper context inside the whole of the New Testament, all of a sudden we realize that as Revelation reveals the power of Jesus in and around the church, it's our responsibility to remember our calling as the church that's given throughout the rest of the New Testament. And it's our job to do the work of heaven on earth. Paul says that we are citizens of heaven 
that we have responsibility to be ambassadors of God's reconciliation. As Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we know that Jesus gave the keys of that kingdom to the church and it's our responsibility to see the kingdom spread around the world as we wait for Christ to return. And so it is very clear that we have work to do. In fact, in Jesus' parables, many of them are parables about a master going away people waiting around and not paying attention, not doing any work, and the master coming back to be very angry. Jesus' parables teach us to be the kind of people that work while we wait, that we have a responsibility to do kingdom work here and now until the day Christ comes again to make everything right and everything new. And when we look at Revelation 13, it was the work of the enemies of God that started to draw people to them. They were mimicking the works of God. We see that first beast that had a head that looked like it had a mortal wound, but it was healed. And people marveled at that. People marveled at all the things that that the forces of evil and the enemies of God were able to do. And they started following after those works. And then sometimes they turn their head and they look at the church and we're just sitting inside of our walls, twiddling our thumbs, not doing anything at all. But as Christians, James tells us that our works are inextricably linked to our faith. In fact, he says, oh, you have faith? Show me your faith. So I have faith and I can show you that through my works. I can show you the faith that I have in Christ through the way that I work and through the way that I serve and through the way that I love. When it comes to the cry of hypocrite, that comes against Christians so often. Those cries often come when we're Christian in name alone. When we claim to believe the right things, when we can give the right answers, when we go to church on a regular basis and we we have an identity that looks that of a Christian and yet then our actions don't go to work, then that's where we can say, no, 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 you're not the real thing. That's when the cries come against us saying, no, you're, you're just saying these things, but you don't really mean it because your life isn't built around it and you're not doing the work that Christians are supposed to do. But when we put the gospel to work, it doesn't mean that people won't have problems with Christians. I mean, Jesus did a lot of good work and people still came against Christ. And he says, they hated me, they'll hate you too. That's fine, just keep doing what you're called to do. But when we do those good works that we're called to do, we're revealing the work of God. And those works have the ability to show people the goodness of the gospel in a way that is tangible, in a way they can touch and feel and experience. See, the reality is it's not enough to be good. We have to do good. And sometimes as Christians, we find ourselves comfortable with the idea of just being good moral people, that we keep the faith and we keep the commandments, right? That's what happened with the rich young ruler that approached Jesus. He says, I keep all the commandments. And Jesus says, good, sell your stuff and come follow me. And he says, no, thank you. And so many times that's what happens in our lives too. I I go to church, I do all the right things. I believe all the right things about Jesus. I believe all the commandments. I don't do bad stuff. I try to make sure that my life is as squeaky clean and moral as possible. And then God says, okay, now go out and love your neighbor as yourself. And we think, man, maybe not. Go out and care for those in need. I don't think so. Go out and share the gospel with people that need to hear it. Oh, maybe tomorrow. It's not enough to be good. We have to do good. And we need to be active 
and are combating the enemies of Christ with good works that show the false works of sin and brokenness in this world to be exactly what they are. We need to labor well. So know the true gospel. Worship the true king. Live in prophetic power. Keep the commandments. Labor well. And then finally, we need to learn to leave a gospel legacy. In the book of Revelation and in the book of Acts, when we put those things together, we see this incredible picture of Christianity thriving in the midst of insecurity. Last week, we talked about one of the things that the the enemies of Christ do to try to lead people away from Christ is to provide a false sense of security. We saw that in that whole Mark of the Beast kind of passage where it says people had to have this to be able to buy and to sell. And so it's this creating this sense of false security that if I put my faith in something other than God, then maybe I'll be able to have the kind of life that I want. Maybe I'll be able to do the things that I want or I won't have to live in fear. That's what Satan came to Jesus with, saying you need to be a little more comfortable. Why are you fasting? Turn the stone to bread and eat it. Why are you worried about anything? If you throw yourself off of here, you can test God and he'll he'll snatch you up. You don't have anything to worry about. And in fact, if you worship me, I'll give you everything that you want and you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do all this. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. I will make you secure. And that's the calling of every sin and every temptation and everything that comes against believers and everywhere in this world. Take your eyes off of God and I'll give you something that feels a little more concrete. And yet, in the book of Acts, from very early on, Christians were losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. In these first chapters of the book of Revelation, we see the letters to the church. John is writing these letters to churches that are going through incredible persecution, oppression, and hardship, seeing people in their own congregations arrested and killed for their faith. In the first century, Just within 50 years of the establishment of the church, we see widespread persecution from religious people in that time and from governmental people in that time where Christians were dying to the point where Nero killed so many of them that he used them as lamps in his garden. And even all around the world right now, when we look at places where Christianity is the hardest, that's the place where Christianity is thriving the most. That doesn't make sense. Why would that be the case? Because it's a testimony to what Christianity really is. See, here, and really throughout history, as people, we like things that are comfortable. And so in America especially, we have this movement of easy and prosperity-based Christianity. And what's crazy about that is for a long time, it was we want a comfortable Christianity. We want a country where everything seems to go in a Christian kind of way so that having faith in Jesus doesn't really cost us anything and we can be comfortable and we can sit back as just good Christian church people. And then that migrated and moved and evolved into, you know what, that's not quite enough. I don't want a comfortable Christianity. I want a prosperous Christianity. I don't just want to be comfortable. I want to be wealthy. I don't want to be comfortable. I want to be healthy. I don't want to be comfortable. I have run out of things that rhyme with those two words. But you get the idea of what I'm trying to say here. We don't just want to be comfortable. We want, God, you need to make me happy. 
You need to meet all the needs that I want. You need to set me up for the life that I want because I thought that if I came to you, if I followed after Jesus, you were gonna put all these things together. And sometimes that's how we sell it, right? Come to Jesus. Oh, you got a bad marriage? Come to Jesus. Jesus will fix your marriage. Oh, you're struggling financially? Come to Jesus. Jesus will fix your bank account. You're sick? Come to Jesus. Jesus will take it away. And what a dangerous thing to say about the faith based on the one who turned people away because they weren't willing to say goodbye to their families to the one who told Peter, you're gonna be stretched out and taken in a place where you don't wanna go and you're gonna be killed. To the God who looked at Paul, who came, to, who came to him multiple times, this man who devoted his life to the gospel comes to God multiple times saying, I have this brokenness in me. I've got this thorn in my flesh and God, I need you to take it away. And God says, no, you're good. My grace is sufficient for you. Because we're called to an endurance. And we have a hope that goes beyond this life and anything that we can deal with. But when we look at easy prosperity-based Christianity, it's not who we're called to be and it's something that can't thrive. We are called to live lives of submission and sacrifice and counting the cost and going anyway. Saying following Jesus may cost me everything, but I'm gonna do it instead. How many times do we ask that question before someone is baptized? How many times do we do that in sharing our faith? Hey, come and follow Jesus. It might kill you. Come and follow Jesus. It might cost you your comfort. Come and follow Jesus. He might call you out of something that feels really good and comfortable and prosperous, and he might call you into something that feels really harsh and overwhelming, and you're just going to have to trust him through it. But that's who we're called to be because we have a hope that goes beyond having a good life now to having an eternity that is blessed with the inheritance that belongs to Jesus himself. The best apologetic that we have, the best weapon that we have against our enemy is the willingness to prove the truth of the gospel by laying down our pride, by laying down our rights, and even if necessary, our lives for the sake of the gospel. You see what you had in the early church with these men and women who saw the resurrection of Jesus. Peter, who was denying Christ as he was being taken towards his cross to die. Peter, who was saying, no, I have nothing to do with that Jesus. Once he saw the resurrected Christ and Jesus said, hey, you're gonna die for this. He said, okay, <laughs> show me where I need to go. You have Paul who had everything. His whole resume was exactly what he wanted it to be. And then he met the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. He says, all that stuff is garbage. I'm willing to lose my head literally for the cause of Christ. And he did so. And as people were seeing this happen, as people were knowing the names and faces of Christians who lost their lives for the gospel, they said, sign me up for that too. Because if this is the level that they believe the gospel... If this is, if they're willing to risk their lives for this, there must be something to this. And they leave this gospel legacy that allows us to look back when we talk about something like the resurrection of Christ, that someone came back from the dead to being alive. We're able to look back at that and say, you know what? These people that claim to see Jesus, when their lives were on the line, they didn't recant. They didn't turn away from it. They didn't say, nope, just a hoax. They were willing 
to lay down their lives for the truth of the gospel. And so we need to leave a legacy worth following, a legacy that leads people to a Christ who is victorious. And that means the things that that the world counts as successful, the things that the world counts as victorious, the things that the world counts as living your best life that you could possibly have here and now, we say, you know what, if I have those things, fine. If I don't have those things, fine. If I have them, I'm going to use them for the gospel. If I don't have them, I know that Christ is sufficient for me and he's all I need and I am going to pursue him no matter what. Our best weapon that we have is the life that we live that's based on the truth of the gospel, that's devoted to worshiping our king, that doesn't come with a sense of fear or guilt or shame, but where we live in prophetic power, keeping the faith and holding fast to our faith in Jesus, holding on to the commandments of God, recognizing the way that he has called us to live is better than anything we could do on our own, and then taking that and putting it to work laboring well for the gospel, for the spreading of the message of Jesus Christ and for the good of those around us and loving and caring for people the way that God loves and cares for us. And through all of that, leaving a legacy that when we're gone from this world, people can look at us and say, that was real. Surely that was a follower of Christ and surely Christ is the son of God. It's our calling to fight against our enemies with our ordinary, faithful, passionate lives, going wherever God calls us to go, doing whatever God calls us to do, and doing it all based on a foundation of truth and sharing that truth and love with anyone that God puts in our pathway and leaving a legacy that ripples with the good news of the kingdom of God. And so let's go to war against the enemy in this world that's trying to pull people's affection and attention away from the God who is, and let's put on display the gospel that redeems from the inside out, gives us a new identity and a new hope and a new eternity. If we believe that, we need to live it. And let's start today. Father God, I mean, it's just almost hard not to preach that and not feel hypocritical because I can just count all the times when I don't do any of those things. But God, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for me in my weakness. I thank you that your grace is sufficient for each person in this room, for our church and for the church all over the world. God, I pray that you just help us to recognize our role in leading people to the gospel. That we are in a spiritual war constantly. And we know the end of it. We know that you've already won the battle, but God, you are calling us to participate in the fight and to help spread your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So help us to know the truth, to worship passionately, to live in faith and keep your commandments. Got to labor well. To leave a legacy that when people remember us one day, they won't think about us in terms of what we were able to accomplish or the 
number in our bank account, or the skills or abilities that we had, but that when they remember us, they would remember the name of Christ. And that through our lives now and through the legacies that we leave, that you would draw people into salvation. So God, help us to do those things because we cannot do it alone. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.